Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawley story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. This week, we cover the murder of Heather Stroop. April 26, 2009. Heather Stroop a 25-year-old florist and mother going through a divorce in Snellville, Georgia, which for those of you not familiar, Snellville is a busy suburb just east of Atlanta, Georgia. Heather left on April 26, 2009 to pick up her toddler son from her estranged husband, Stephen. It was routine for Heather and Stephen, with whom she shared custody of their son, Carson, to meet at a local Target parking lot. So once Carson was with Heather, Stephen drove away. But as Heather buckled Carson into his car seat, the unthinkable happened. Witnesses said a person wearing a, quote, Sonny and Cher style man's wig and fake mustache walked up to Heather, this is in broad daylight, and shot her point blank in the head. Heather's shooter was thankfully caught on mall surveillance tape walking away from the scene. So the actual shooting wasn't caught on camera, but they did have surveillance footage of the suspect. So initially police looked at Steven Stroop as a suspect, but he later verified that when he left Target, he he went and got his car washed, and he was actually with a girlfriend at the time of Heather's murder. Authorities finally received a big break in the case from a truck driver who had reportedly stayed in a hotel behind the target where Heather's shooting occurred. A day before the murder, the truck driver said his attention was caught by an individual in a white pickup truck. It had very distinctive detailing, and this person was taking pictures of the shopping center and looking at it through binoculars. And he remembered noting it was suspicious, to say the least. Well, this witness would go on to identify that white truck as one belonging to Heather's mother-in-law, Joanna Hayes. So when investigators dug deeper into Hayes's background, they talked to Heather's loved ones, of course, they found out Heather and Joanna Hayes did not get along. And more than anything, Joanna Hayes was determined to remain a part of her grandson Carson's life. Of course, her son's divorce would have jeopardized that arrangement. In May 2009, police showed Stephen Strube the tape of the shooting suspect seen at the Target parking lot the day of Heather's murder. 
and this is per several reports that I've read. And, and also they, they played his interrogation tape eventually at Joanna Hayes's trial. He becomes visibly shaken. He broke down and immediately identified the individual in that surveillance footage as his own mother, Joanna Hayes. And I'm going to stop there because we have so much more to unpack. And what I'm going to do is introduce our source for this week, and that is the one and only Sandra Parrish. Sandra Parrish has been a reporter for 95.5 WSB since 1995. She covers political, legislative, transportation, and educational news. She graduated from the University of Georgia's Grady College of Journalism and then worked as an anchor in Lawrenceville, uh, WNGC in Athens, WDUN in Gainesville before she joined WSB in Atlanta. Over the years, Sandra has received several awards for her reporting, including numerous awards from the Associated Press, Georgia Association of Broadcasters, and Society of Professional Journalists. I'll let her tell you more about her very esteemed career and also, of course, her extensive coverage of Heather Stroop's case. Without further ado, here's my conversation with WSB's Sandra Parrish on the murder of Heather Stroop. Um, well, first, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Tell us a little about yourself and your career as a journalist so far. So I've been with WSB Radio since 1995, and I've had actually a, a 31-year radio career, but most of that has been at WSB. And um, I am the, the legislative reporter. So anything that goes on down at the state capitol or with the governor or anything to do with politics is, is my beat. But I also used to live in Gwinnett County, which is where this murder took place. And so for the better of 15 years, I covered everything you know, inside and out when it came to Gwinnett County murders, school districts, everything under um under that umbrella. And this case, uh, I know you and I, before we connected, we were talking, I'd never heard about Heather Strube's case. Um, and I've lived in Gwinnett County uh, near Snellville, which is for anyone listening that's not familiar, it's east of Atlanta. Um, so before we unpack the case, can you give me a little background on Heather? So Heather um, was a young mother. She was in her 20s when this happened. Um, we actually had mutual friends who we all went to the same, same church together. I did not know her personally, but I had a lot of friends who did and who grew up with her, actually. And she was just a fun, loving person. And she loved her little boy. And unfortunately, uh, her marriage fell apart, I think, after about five years. And you know, she obviously was doing the best she could, could to navigate that divorce and take care of a, of a toddler at the time while dealing with a mother-in-law who, you know, for all intents and purposes, did not like her and did not think she was a good mother. And when you describe Heather, you describe her, she was a young mom, 25 years old, going through this divorce from her estranged husband, Stephen. She uh, you mentioned her toddler son, Carson. Um, it was routine that she would go and 
drop him off or pick him up from this particular target in Snellville. And that's where she was. April 26, 2009 was picking Carson up from what I had read. And um, you take it from there. Walk us through what happened that day that led up to such a tragic shooting. So as routine, they met at the Target parking lot. Uh, Stephen, who'd had custody of Carson that weekend, was handing him back to Heather. And so they met in a very public place, you know, broad daylight that afternoon. A lot of people around who'd been out shopping and she had gotten Carson. She had buckled him in his car seat. And that's when this person a person described as um, small in stature. So if it was a man, you know, it would be small for a man wearing a sunny and sheer type wig. It was a shaggy black wig and this mustache. And I think most people, when they saw this person, they realized it was a woman dressed like a man. Um, But she just went up to Heather. Heather screamed once and there was a gunshot and she actually you know, held the gun up to her forehead and shot and killed her right there. She had just strapped Carson in. So he was in his car seat at the time and his mother is murdered there right in front of him with people all around. Okay. So also knowing that there were witnesses all around, um, what did they end up telling police who arrived at the scene? And then also just for my curiosity, was there surveillance footage of whoever did this? So the surveillance footage did not show the actual murder, but it showed this person walking along the sidewalk, walking right up to the car. And so that's as far as it went. But then they had, I can't remember, at least two or three witnesses who were there in the parking lot and saw it happen. Oh, my gosh. And did I mean, I assume they tried to help Heather. And what did what did police say when they arrived on scene? What how did they describe the scene? Well, I mean, Heather was was just dead right there at her car and um, with a boy, little boy inside strapped in inside the car. And I'm sure people were just, you know, standing around in disbelief of what they had witnessed. Um, The suspect was nowhere around at the time. And so, matter of fact, I think the first person they looked at was her ex-husband or her her estranged husband, Stephen. But he was nowhere to be found at that moment either. Okay, interesting. I mean, we see that. A lot in true crime. Unfortunately, the the spouse, the the partner, whoever it is, is probably one of the first people that police look at. Um, that had to just be so horrific. I can't imagine coming up on, you know, and then seeing Carson in his car seat. And uh, luckily he was, you know, able to escape without injury. Um, so as they start to investigate, you mentioned they're narrowing down a list of suspects. Stephen, her estranged husband, was definitely on that list. Can you tell us a little about him and his background? So Stephen was had kind of a troubled life as a teen and a young adult, and he actually um, had been charged with a burglary before all this happened, and I believe was on probation at the time that the murder occurred. And from friends who, of Heather, who I knew, you know, I think the the strife with his mother and her dislike of Heather kind of contributed to that divorce. Other than that, I really don't have a whole lot of knowledge 
at the type of person that he was. Um, so as they ruled him out eventually, I, I think it was he said he was with a girlfriend at the time or something to that effect. His alibi checked out. Um, so what eventually I thought this was interesting that I'd read there wound up being a big break in the case and it was a truck driver who witnessed something. I think it was the day before Heather's shooting. So you would know better than me, but what led to what, how did police finally narrow it down to one suspect? So there was this tr truck driver. There's an extended stay, a couple of extended stay motels. there directly adjacent to target. And so this truck driver was out in the parking lot. He happened to see the truck belonging to Joanna Hayes there. He saw a person get out, you know, taking pictures. And so that ultimately, I think, is what gave police the break that they needed because Joanna had a truck matching the description. And obviously, you know, the stature and everything. And it really came down. They, they talked about her gait a lot. Apparently, the way she walked, it was very distinct. And so and even people who knew and they testified during the trial that, you know, knew the family. And then we later hear from Stephen himself to police. They recognized this gate. And so ultimately, all those things pointed to Joanna as committing the, the murder. And you've alluded to uh, Joanna Hayes, Stephen's mom, Heather's mother-in-law. Uh, she was not, Joanna was not a huge fan of Heather, uh, may have contributed to Heather's divorce from Stephen. Um, do we know any more about her? Had Was this, I mean, had she committed any crimes before all this? So... She, I don't think she had been charged with any crimes, but during the trial, her ex-husband, Stephen's dad, um, testified to an incident, I think about 20 years prior, to where she actually held a gun to his forehead during an argument they had. And police say it was very much like the actual murder scene of Heather being shot one time in the head. So I think that, you know, all of these little pieces police were starting to put together to get a clearer picture that Joanna was the one who had committed this. And Joanna herself was very controlling. And obviously she liked to control her son's life and she wanted control over her grandson too. And, and because of this divorce, she wasn't going to get that or she wasn't going to have that anymore. And so, you know, that was her motive to commit this crime. Wow. Okay. So, and, and you mentioned this too, that, her gait was very distinct, which is so interesting, so much so that when Stephen was working with the police and they showed him surveillance footage, he could identify her immediately. That's that is my mom. That is Joanna Hayes. So um, how did they ultimately, with Stephen's help, catch her, arrest her and were able to charge her with Heather's murder? So Stephen ended up kind of working with police early on. And so he saw that video and, and of course they have, you know, video of him being interrogated and he immediately starts crying. Like he breaks down. He's like, Oh my gosh, that's her. Like, you know, he sees the video he knows. So he agrees to get on the phone with his mom there before the detectives. And he's like, mom, I know this is you. I saw the video. You know, why did you do it? And, and she remains calm through that whole phone conversation. And she denies anything, having anything to do with, that at all 
I think police knew, and it, and it did take a while. I mean, I, I'm not sure how many months it took for them to make an arrest in the case, but I think they were looking at her early on once they ruled Stephen out. I think they had turned to her just because not only of, of the recognition, but, you know, friends of Heather. There was one in particular who's a mutual friend of mine who said, you know, Heather had told me that she was afraid of her mother-in-law. You know, she's like, I am genuinely concerned. And, you know, if anything ever happens. And so I think they knew early on, it was just a matter of finding the evidence in order to get her. And in, and in the end, there wasn't a lot of evidence either. I mean, it was, it was mostly circumstantial evidence, but they were able just to, to tie, you know, they found a strand of that wig in her truck when they were able to, to impound it. So, I mean, ultimately, everything pointed to her, but it took a lot of uh, detective work to do so. I just can't, I mean, I can't imagine, too, wrapping my mind around when your own mom has done something so horrific, and then I, I, it makes sense to me his reaction would, would be so visceral and so emotional, and that's that's just so tragic. That's so sad, so tragic all the way around. Um so with Stephen's help and like you said, just piecing together as much evidence as they could, um, the trial began, I think it was May 4th, 2011, um, more than two years after Heather's shooting, um, compiling all of the evidence and everything. What was the prosecution's strategy, would you say, during the trial and how did the defense respond so, so like I said, it was mostly circumstantial, although they did find the, the, the strand from the wig. But what ultimately led her, her attorneys said, there, you know, she was in Luthersville at the time. There's no way, there's not enough time for her to get from one to another. And, and she had this Wendy's receipt where, where she stopped on her way home showing, you know, the, the time stamp. And, and police say that that was she did it on purpose. Like she was there trying to, to be an, show her alibi by getting that receipt. So they actually drove it and they found that there was enough time for her to make that. And so that's what the case hinged on. And I mean, ultimately they ended up with a conviction in the case and I don't think anybody doubted it, but just to think about the process that they went through to get that conviction is pretty amazing. That's that's good on them. I mean, obviously, it's their job, but to I, the calculation, too. And I read to early on that police had said specifically it felt very choreographed and planned and it was definitely not random. But to go to a Wendy's nearby to get a receipt to try to verify your alibi it just feels so cold and cold blooded. And I guess I was going to ask you, how did Joanna Hayes act during the trial? Did she seem remorseful at all for what had happened? She never was. She never seemed remorseful. I mean, she got up on, you know, the, they ask if she wants to say anything. And she did say something, you know, upon the, the conviction and the sentencing. And I don't remember all the words exactly, but basically I think she was mainly sorry that Heather died, but I don't think even then that she showed that she, she was remorseful for doing it. You know, she, she kind of left that open. And I think that all just goes back to her, you know, wanting so much control of a situation that she wasn't going to give in and admit even then that she had done anything wrong. Wow. 
That's just, I, it's, again, it's a lot to wrap your mind around. I'm sure also, you know, for Heather's family, but I also think of Steven too, again, the, that being his mom. Um, so did Steven testify? What would you say of anyone who testified was, was the most impactful to the final verdict? So when Stephen took the stand, I don't know that he was necessarily trying to help his mom, but we didn't see the same side of him that we saw in the video of the police interrogation. You know, he he took the stand, you know, gave his side of the story, but it was kind of a different, he presented himself differently. Of course, you know, two years had passed too since that happened. But um, I think his, the video of his interrogation was a big part in the case, as well as the testimony from Joanna's ex-husband talking about her pointing the gun at his head. I think both of those really helped make that case. And I would assume, like you said, finding that piece of hair from the wig and Joanna's car. Um, so ultimately, uh, the jury was convinced of Joanna's guilt. She was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole um, in 30 years. Do you know, has she appealed the verdict? She did. Um, she appealed the verdict. Uh, I think she, it was immediate appeal, and it was took till 2013, and her conviction was upheld. So she is still in, in jail right now. That's what I was going to ask is if we, we know. So she's still alive, but in jail. Um, do we know where Stephen is and how Carson is doing now? So I don't know the latest on Stephen. I do know Carson is living with him now. Uh, there was a custody battle after all this. And, and Heather's parents actually got custody of Carson. And I think he spent a good bit of his young childhood with them. Unfortunately, Heather's mom passed away a few years later. And so at some point, Carson ended up going back to live with his dad, Stephen, and he would be a teenager now. Heather's family, too, I was curious, and the the loved ones that you knew, um, did they suspect Stephen or Joanna right away? I think they all suspected Joanna right away, just because of the type of person that she was and, you know, seeing interactions between Joanna and Heather. I think they all knew, especially Heather's parents. I think they, they knew right away that Joanna was the one that did it. Wow. How did they uh, react to the verdict? Did they give any statements afterward or talk to the press at all? They did. They talked to us. Um, Heather's friend talked to us as well. I mean, they were all in tears. They were all in tears when they came out of that courtroom and they were happy tears. You know, they came out and, you know, felt justice had been served and obviously would rather still have Heather there, but they felt like that the jury made the right decision and they were happy to see Joanna behind bars. And as a journalist who covered this from start to finish, and you mentioned you've, you've been on oxygen and HLN and talked about this, this case in particular and all your coverage, um, what interviews stood out to you the most and, and what, what were your biggest takeaways from this case? Probably talking to Heather's mom. I mean, you know, to have your, and it, she was their only child too. And so to have your only child taken away that way and, you know, Luckily, they were able to have the grandson with them for however many years that they did. But, you know, their world 
turned upside down. And so I had talked to her all along during, during the trial and it was just, you could just see she was just ripped apart. Her, you know, her heart was broken at the loss of her daughter, but knowing, you know, the outcome, it, it was, it was great talking to her and seeing the relief on her face, knowing that justice was served. Absolutely. That's not always the case, unfortunately, sometimes with the way courts work and trial proceedings and all that. We've seen it time after time where, you know, it's so sad that parents of these victims will pass away sometimes before there's ever any kind of closure or justice served. Um, And then I always like to, as one of the final questions that I usually have is focusing on the victim, too. in the friends and family that you spoke with and Heather's mom, how did they say they wanted Heather to be remembered? They just wanted her to be remembered for the, the sweet, loving person, young mother that she was. I mean, she loved Carson, you know, with all her heart. And I think that's, that's how they want her to remember that she was just a a fun loving young woman who deserved so much more in life and deserved to live a much longer life than she ultimately did. When you first got called to the story, um, I guess I've always been curious and part of the reason behind the podcast too, what inspired it initially is that we as journalists, we're also people, we're humans, you know, and it's hard because we have to be objective, but how did you react? How did you feel, I guess, just as not a journalist, but as a person when you heard this news? As a journalist, I mean, it, you cover a lot of murders, obviously, a lot of shootings. But the fact, for one, that was so close to my home within a couple of miles. And two, that this is a person I didn't know personally, but I knew her friends personally. She she used to go to the church that I was attending at the time. And so it brought it home closer to me you know, that something like this could happen, you know, to somebody like Heather, you know, young mom had her whole life ahead of her, you know, wanted to watch her child grow up and she didn't get that opportunity. So, you know, as a person covering this case, you're just, you're heartbroken, you know, you're sad for, for not only the victim, but you know, all the friends and family of that victim. And it just, it just brought it closer to home to me, um, probably than any other story I've ever covered. And one of the last questions that I asked Sandra was whether there were any other cases she'd like to discuss on the podcast in an upcoming episode. And she had this to say about another trial she covered extensively in 2019. Well, the only other big case that that I could that I covered start to finish was that Imani Moss, the little girl that talk about touching you. I mean, I was, you know, I'm a mom. And when it happened, I guess my girls were still either in middle or high school. But um, I mean, we I sat there and listened to everything they did to that poor child. And it just I mean, I think I I think I very came close to tears, but I had never been so angry at a defendant because they were in the court. It was during the preliminary hearing. And so both her dad and her stepmom were there and just to listen with it. I mean, I was just glaring at him. I could not believe somebody could do that to their own child. Such a tragic case. I remember following the Imani Moss trial, 
here in Georgia. So I, I hope to unpack that trial, that case with Sandra as soon as possible in the new year. And that leaves us with a tease for content coming up in 2023, which I cannot believe I'm saying. I wanted to leave you with one last episode before the holidays officially begin. I hope you're relaxing with loved ones, or maybe you're on your way to relaxing with loved ones and catching up on all your favorite podcasts, including this podcast. This is Beyond Criminal Headlines. My name is Nicole Bennett. Every few weeks, you'll be able to find new episodes on any of your favorite podcast providers featuring conversations between myself and esteemed journalists from across the industry, also experts in the field of true crime who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history. And you can, of course, follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. And I know I've said this so many times, but I cannot underscore enough how much I've enjoyed hearing from listeners this past year, getting recommendations for cases we can cover in upcoming episodes. I hope to catch up on all of those conversations over the holiday break. I hope you learned something from this week's episode featuring the esteemed Sandra Parrish on the murder of Heather Strube. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, until next year, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.